Welcome to this episode of Clinically Pressed. On this episode, we have Sean Eno, who is an orthotist, I believe is the correct way of it, uh, talking about orthotics, inserts, anything to correct foot issues uh, that you may need some actual structural support for. This was an extremely fascinating episode. Uh, it's one that I personally will be rewatching several times uh, as I learned a lot. Uh, if you're listening to this, you can get a lot of what Sean's saying through probably the first half an hour or so, uh, about in the midpoint of the episode. He gets out a model and starts demonstrating some stuff, so you may want to kick over to the YouTube video or clinicallypress.com backslash extreme footworks. That's um, extreme with no E and footworks with an E instead of an O at the end. So if nothing else, click over to our homepage and you can find the link there. So yes, highly recommend that if this is anything, if you've had any foot or lower leg issues, you may want to take a look at this. Um, also with that, please, if you can leave us a review on iTunes, we are trying to give away these mobility kits and nobody is taking um, our word for it to get it. We've got about eight to 10 of them. We are wanting to get them out to you guys. It's completely free. Just leave a review with some way that we can shout you out. Nick run. We're still waiting on you. Then when we mention it, send us an email, let us know. We'll figure out how to get it to you. We'll cover all of that. So it is completely free to you. We want to give it back as a thank you, especially for leaving us the review with that. Enjoy the episode. Sounds good. Well, just take it away then. <clears throat> so, uh, welcome to this episode of Clinically Pressed. We are here on a Google Hangout with Sean Eno, and Sean is in Idaho Springs, Colorado, at Extreme Footworks, and he is a board-certified podorthist from Oklahoma State University. Um, he worked at, on an assignment with a, a large national custom foot orthotics laboratory. And then formed Extreme Footworks in 2004, and I, I believe he was going to touch on the the story, the background of why he wanted to uh, establish that. He has an extensive experience in orthotic fabrication, and um, his experience, along with his extensive background in foot and ankle biomechanics, have kind of given him national recognition as an expert in his field. And that's kind of the way that I became exposed to Sean and his work. And I was absolutely blown away at his knowledge. It is kind of crazy. And I'm sure uh, we'll get a little taste of that here today. Um, he he uh, consults nationally in his field of expertise and also lectures nationally on biomechanics and foot orthotic therapy. So thanks for being here with us, Sean. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I guess just starting off, could you paint the picture of why you decided to start Extreme Footworks? Well, I'd say the first thing is I got struck by a car while riding a motorcycle home from college, and my lower left leg above the ankle malleoli about four inches was nearly severed in a compression injury. Um, but I had ligamentous uh, structures intact and adequate blood flow through the impact. So they basically reconstructed tib-fib, um, but the foot was smashed. I was left with a hallux abducto valgus, which is the fancy term for a massive bunion. It kind of looks like a ball-peen hammer. And when I, they asked me if I wanted to have a base wedge osteotomy, I asked them, would it make it work any better? And they said, no. And I said, why would I do this then and they said well it'll fit into shoes better and especially when you're older you'll have less problems well I wasn't older and I said no thank you and walked out um, but of course I've had a lot of problems ever since then and um, if it weren't for a set of really good orthotics from an old-school pedorthist and we're losing all these guys because they came through the previous generation of footwear and so because footwear is now centrally manufactured in other locations, we're losing all these footwear-based pedorthists. And he 
died in the first four years that I had him as a care provider and I threw his orthotics out and then I started falling apart. And when I went back to find him, he was gone. And then that's what led me to realize there was a ton of bad product in this industry. I got several orthotics from either podiatric circles or chiropractic circles. Um, won't name any brands, but we all know what is out there that doesn't seem to work. Um, and so when I did find someone who provided me with another set, he was just getting into the field of pedorthics and he was training with a German graduate of Munich School of Biomechanics and Orthopedic Shoe Manufacturing. That guy and he and um, Randy Merrill, the founder of the Merrill Shoe Company, and a couple other persons had a little bit different slant on things because they were designing footwear too. And so this industry kind of becomes like a small playground when you start knowing who the players were. I got a bit of an atypical education. I got care first and then said, whoa, nobody knows this stuff. I need to take, uh, I need to get a job with you. And he was in resistance to that. I got a traditional apprenticeship for reasons related to where he didn't want to go with me. I had to move into a lab environment and I took a job with that national lab. And it was there that I saw this stark contrast between what we were doing in the clinic versus what they were doing for 2,500 to 6,000 pairs a month. And I can't tell you how many times we were couched to say, well, orthotics don't work for everyone. Sorry, they didn't work for you, i.e. can help you. I kind of got in trouble with that company because I had answers, but the answers interfered with the business model. All right, if we make things a little too complicated, right? then a lot less people will start providing them in their offices because they're going to pull their hair out saying this is too complicated. So the real problem with labs is they want you to think it's a cookie cutter deal. Bing, bang, boom, give a person an orthotic. And obviously it's not a good business tactic to make it look more difficult than that, right? Because that affects sales. So I, unfortunately, with my altruistic background in the concept and needing something way more than what they could provide, they would have never been able to help a person like myself. And probably two out of five people and users weren't getting a benefit from the orthotics and throwing them in the bottom of the closet and taking a financial wallet. So I said, I can't stand this and I'm, I'm like a fish out of water in central Tennessee. So I went back to Colorado and I started a lab in the back of my house. And if you look at studies, the studies show that the two greatest determinant outcomes for foot orthotic therapy are the efficacy of the cast and data acquired when evaluating and casting your patient, and then the choice of materials and posting that you choose to create an orthotic for a patient. So right away, if your lab only offers you one type of orthotic, type being the uh, density or durometer of the materials selected, the elements that are put together, whether it's soft, hard, if everything's hard coming from a lab or everything's soft or everything's manufactured in one way, then we already know that certain people, and they're mostly the outliers, people with troublesome biomechanical configurations or bad feet, so to speak, bad legs, they're the ones that aren't served because they're difficult. And so as being one of those people myself, I have basically been altruistically motivated to serve them with a greater level of offering. The downside is, is I lose people because they don't want to take this on. The upside is we get a little bit better results than these other labs because, first of all, we don't give up. Second of all, we try to get it right the first time by understanding what they need, what they're dealing with, what's going to work, what isn't. And then the other thing is we can give you guys at your end some ways to figure out before you order the orthotic or design it, what's going to work and what isn't. One of the hugest or largest problems with orthotic therapy is the shoes. So like if you, for example, I had a gal that drove to the office in Tennessee that I worked for, and we did this kind of special bing, bang, boom style orthotic stuff. And I remember telling her, you can't wear these Walmart shoes with this orthotic, or you're going to have a Walmart orthotic that you just paid you know, hundreds for, right? Well, she came back a week later and wanted a refund for the orthotics and told me she wasn't going to change her shoes. So I have literally couched the initial evaluation. So you're going to sit down with the patient. You're going to work them up. You're going to look and see what how they line up, first of all. And line up is relevant to the three cardinal planes and has a lot to do with forward progression. 
Okay, so we're all walking forward in the sagittal plane while we're moving in a frontal plane, while we're bearing weight on a transverse plane with no give, right? So one of the analogies I use is if you, if you look at game trails outside of some of these crazy goats out here, most large game will seek a softer surface to bear weight on, and they're not even conscious by a definition of human conscious. They just subconsciously or unconsciously go, ouch, 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 when they walk across bedrock, right? So a lot of, a lot of animals and people would opt for the side of the paved path in the park if they were barefoot. Now we get this illusion from footwear that suddenly we're not barefoot, right? Because we change the tactile sensation, we reduce some of the shock on the bottom of the feet, but we're buying this footwear that's engineered poorly, and half the time the footwear is creating your patient's problem. So if we build a model, and this is our model at Extreme Footworks, and it's empirically built based on A, Newtonian physics, i.e. Newton was the first one to, to talk about gravitationally derived physics which is the same basis for any factory floor construction of any machine is gravity orientation. Like you can't have a machine sitting on the side slope like this. What machine's going to sit there and do its job at a 10 degree angle to earth's gravity? Not many. And so we're all machines and this human machine dictated by that. Right. And then we're all getting packed really hard into this completely unforgiving surface that we're on. And there is actually a variation between like marble and wood floors. Like you want the wood over the marble, definitely. So mall walkers back in the day, these indoor malls were getting hammered, right? So then you got the walking shop downstairs and come get your new balance, come get your rock port, walk around the mall, kill yourself walking on the mall. Well, the shoes kind of give those humans also a little bit of a, a false safety impression. Right. So then they think, oh, I got the shoe on. So then I don't have any problems. Well, unbeknownst to them, because whatever shoe company they purchase it from doesn't care about what it actually does. Once they put it on their feet, they only really care till you carry it out the door. Right. So shoes create a lot of issues. We can solve a lot of problems just by simply sourcing good footwear for our patients. That and an understanding of how just like a. Um, a house sits on a foundation or a car sits in a driveway with straight wheels or bent wheels or a bicycle with a rim out of shape doesn't function because of basic physics. If a body doesn't position itself well standing and then those feet don't position themselves well walking on those man-made surfaces in those shoes, that's where we have an opportunity to address what's happening there and make them move and stand better through repositioning their feet. Now, why? That's where we get into what, what are all these pathologies. But backing up for just a second, we're all coming out of these rounded womb environments, okay? And according to, um, and I don't want to step on any religious toes here, but according to evolution and where we've come from, we used to be a little bit more spherically oriented. We were swinging from trees. We were moving around using our upper bodies a little bit more. When we became bipeds and we started moving, we had a lot of natural terrain to move across. Um, we were doing moccasins and basic sandals and low um, interfering footwear, i.e. the footwear didn't change the step that much because all it was was a glorified layer of protection plus some sinew or whatever, right? But then when we started constructing shoe soles and changing the way the shoe soles constructed, we started interfering with the basic tenets of gait. So we can talk about how shoes mess up the rocker of gait, which is heel entry to mid stance face to toe off. We can talk about how shoes uh, mess up the orientation of feet in the, um, in the coronal plane or the frontal plane. So if we have a foot standing like this, um, essentially when a foot is neutral, both in its leg orientation to Earth's gravitational plane and the bottom of the tripodal foot is in a three-point contact with the ground, we have what we call ideal biomechanics. Now take 10 of your patients and have them stand up in front of you and ask yourself if you see a neutrally oriented tibia on top of a tripodally planted foot. And that's where eight out of 10 of them, are, you're not going to see that. So backing up, we have to we, we try to educate our patients as to what it is that they would be doing if they had good biomechanics so they can see the gross deviation. 
And when we go back to that womb environment, we have the development from zero to five and a half years old to get down to a straight lower quarter alignment. And straight is defined by those three cardinal planes, right? So if we look at someone's legs and they have curves or twists, then we can be fairly certain that their joints don't line up and that they have to go through some range of compensations in their foot positioning on the ground to make up for those curves and twists. So I try to teach our end users, both patients when they come in here, as well as the doctors, people listening in lectures, about building this empirically, no pun intended, from the ground up, right? So first of all, understanding what they're doing, where they're doing it, right? So if they work at Walmart or Home Depot or the grocery store or General Motors or any other factory floor, you can be for certain that they're spending 40-hour work week and if they're a factory floor worker, they don't have a desk or a seat, right? So we're assuming it's a weight-bearing situation. They're getting pounded. I use the analogy, hold your hand up, don't let it move, maybe put it against the wall and slap it with a frying pan five times. Mm -hmm. And that is what your foot feels like every time you take a step and you're overweight in the Midwest and you like your cheeseburgers and you're walking along in your pictures on the park trail path, concreted over, yeah. okay? So in that case, if we just looked at the, the flat surface of a frying pan and the not so flat surface of a bottom of a foot with three arches, we can see that there lies the first reason why a foot would present to you like this instead of like this, based on the inability of all those soft tissue structures to hold that foot up against a non-forgiving, completely rigid surface with an overburden maybe above BMI, which is a big story in this country, right? Yeah. Um, and if you look at the people who are running these races, like these half marathons and marathons, they look like they're floating across the finish line. Like they have to, like they have like an anti-gravity like disc in their butt, right? And they're just like floating across. They're the best runners. Uh, yeah, right, me neither. I'm like boom, boom, boom. So I like to run in the woods where the, where the dirt and the ground eats up some of that pounding. Um, if we had like a accelerometer or a force plate in our shoes, we could see the different surfaces. And I've literally gotten those types of runners that have come up through the Midwest and they're running a race every weekend on a street, right? Or on a, on a trail and, I, and they go, oh, I stop running. They start crying and I go, have you tried running like single track or a dirt road? exclusively like don't even run out the door get in your car drive to the trailhead or the dirt road and get out and do it do it there and many of them can come back and report that they can run some on those surfaces with orthotics or without with right with the correct shoes and it really does end up being a lifetime of just getting hand boned by man's man-made surfaces and zero give so we see in environments now that we're starting to mitigate that with mats and stuff like that. And the other way to mitigate it is by these materials that shoes are constructed of. So as we work our way from the ground through the shoes and then a discussion here in a moment about foot pathology and lower quarter pathology, we have various options with footwear, but we cannot sacrifice stability for comfort. So many of these shoes are offering a ton of comfort but they're messing with the stance phase mechanics of the person's gait by causing the foot to turn out or in, which is in, in relative terms is pronation or supination, whether that foot is rolling outward or inward. And if we just did a static evaluation of our patients, the ones that have a heel that will evert too much end up being over pronators most of the time. The ones that have a heel that doesn't evert a lot, usually they have this crazy range of inversion. We can see feet literally break down like this. So not all feet break down in a pronated position. I've seen supinated, supinata feet where the whole entire foot has rolled over this way. And why? Because it can, right? Because, because it can. I mean, how many feet do you access where you grab a heel and it's rigid both in inversion and eversion? Well, that foot, that foot type exists too. And they're the ones like, you know, you live in your, at home when you're 21 and your mom has feet like that. She walks across the floor in the morning and you're like, oh, I guess I better get up and go to school. That's one of the reasons why you move out, right? Well, she has that rigid heel that doesn't evert. So there's no shock absorption at heel strike by the body or the foot. So it translates into 
massive deformation of the bursa sac, which is actually kind of like a silicone breast insert. We've noticed when we're casting that we'll get a donut effect. We'll get a positive, like a convexity out of the heel sometimes because the way that reacts, that tissue acts like a, uh, a rubber tire, like, a, like you use for floating down the river, right? Where all of a sudden it bottoms out in the center, but that bottoming out comes from the bottom and the top. So another thing that impacts the heels too is that the way that the shoe manufacturers construct the upper around to the sole, they leave this gigantic rigid stitch around the entire foot like a bathtub ring and then the softer materials in the middle of the shoe and the shoe subside negatively impacts the foot. These are things that your consumer and user have no idea about. And that's what you have to work around in your office. As we move then, we, we have to have a good uh, recommendation for a shoe and that is a huge deal I mean it means you get the right shoe and you're gonna have a way better chance at having a good outcome for the orthotics general rule is that the more rigid a foot structure is the more forgiving material should be used in the construction of the orthotic so if you've got somebody with a rigid high arched foot pore shock absorber, supinator, internal tibial torsion, where they're, they're, they're pigeon-footed, that means that they need help with shock attenuation and they need redistribution of foot plantar pressures by a softer device. Versus that person with extremely hypermobile foot, complete collapse movement, lots of movement of the foot muscle or uh, foot joint uh, lines and the bones in the foot, that's the one you need more structure out of your orthotic because they already absorb shock with that sloppy foot. You need kind of more you know, support. Same thing goes for the shoe recommendations. And also, if you've got a supinator, someone who falls off their shoe this way, and you put them on an anti-pronational shoe, it's just going to push them off the outside of the shoe more. So we see a lot of poorly applied footwear to the wrong foot type, causing injuries. A person who supinates and buys a Brooks Beast is going to have a high ankle sprain shortly thereafter. Okay. We put them in tennis shoes and basketball shoes and anything that resists the shoe from rolling over laterally. And that means we have to get them out of running shoes. But I mean, tennis players and basketball players run up and down the court too, right? right? So it's actually kind of a running shoe. It just doesn't have any tread. They'll slip if they're not on a court with it. Then we have to move into like light hikers, uh, approach shoes, shoes that are designed for some kind of instability this way because of pattern or terrain variation. So we, rec we recommend outdoor footwear. We have some solid recommendations and we can provide those to you, Dr. Bolin, at some point after the conversation because they change some too and sometimes they're hard to find. A great place to source footwear is zappos.com because they pay for the return shipping. So as long as you're willing to take the balance on your credit card yep. and shop at home and wear them in the house and not outside, you can do really well by them. Okay. It's a little frustrating, but they get them there, you know, like in a day or two. Um, but once we've moved into the foot, what we're looking for is either we have a beating up of the ground element to feet, right? So that those pathologies are like plantar fasciitis, bursitis metatarsalgia. Neuromas actually form from too much pressure on the lateral foot column. So you'll see neuromas in people with pigeon fit footedness, metatarsus seductus, people with supinated feet because they're not coming across and bearing enough weight on the first toe. The first toe is 2.5 times greater than the other four because you're supposed to bear 60% of weight at toe off on that toe. If we go too far in, then those pressures are exacerbated on the first toe and we get pathologies like bunions, how it's rigidus and limitus and complete failure of the uh, tibial talonavicular and navicular cuneiform joints, whereby we then see that failure of the medial longitudinal arch. And that has to do with excessive medial foot pressures formed by excessive failure of the foot in pronation. But we also see excessive lateral foot pressures produced by the supinated rigid foot and by people with internal torsion deficits of femur and or tibia where their toe off vector is then forced them to walk off the outside of their feet another way of coining that is they're under pronators they don't pronate to neutral neutral by those uh, lines on the back of the foot are defined by earth's gravitational axis what are you looking for a neutral calcaneus an uncollapsed midfoot and a 
consistent from fifth to first loaded forefoot. That's what you're looking for. But you don't want too much external rotation or internal rotation. So that gives us a chance as physicians, clinicians in our office to see that stance phase mechanics and evaluate it even relative to that door frame behind you in your picture there, right? You could, if you have issues with a spatial understanding at first, your, your office is perfect because you even have cinder block lines down along the floor. You could go have them stand in front of a cinder block line and if the heel counter of the back of their shoe is not in the sagittal plane, you probably have a problem there derived either from the shoe or they wore the shoe into that telling you something. People's shoes are awesome 3D prints. So I will take a shoe, set it right here on the counter and show a patient using a clipboard how their shoe no longer has a 50-50 uh, uh, split of the upper from one side to the other showing that they've worn it over or worn it in, right? And a lot of times one shoe wears in and the other shoe wears out. And that lends our conversation to move up the kinetic chain a little bit, right? Yeah. So one of the things that torsions produce is an offset in the axis of the foot relative to the direction of progression. So if I'm walking this way, but my foot is walking this way or this way, then we're not going to get a toe off right over the fibular sesamoid. We're going to get a lateral deviated toe off for an internal torsion or a femoral antiversion, or we're going to get an, a toe off inside the big toe for a duck-footed person with, who has either external tibial deformity or femoral antiversion, um, which is you know usually a hip or femur-derived external rotation of the legs. We can, uh, at some other time, we can talk about evaluatory procedures for that, but in essence, if the knee, hip, and foot don't produce a well-aligned lever for propulsion, then the body will compensate by trying to move that foot into that position, and you will see that. So we see these compensations at the foot that are produced by the physics of the tibia and femur and their relation to the pelvis and spine. Obviously, you deal a lot with that. And that is a reciprocal relationship. I don't argue the feet cause all the back problems, and I don't argue the back causes all the feet problems. They're kind of, you know, intricately related to one another. Um, and if these have to be aligned, so then the foot has a certain range of eversion, pronation range of motion, and inversion, supination range of, range of motion to try to offset where it falls due to its own anatomy. So if someone has a nice, pardon me here, tibial varum, and that's a frontal curve, and you can see here how that's a curved tibia, right? Then this foot is going to come in at the ground at an angle slightly, and that foot driven by the tibial varum will need to adjust in and down to reach the transverse plane, producing, in most cases, a pronated foot to get that done. I use the analogy of you go to the store and buy a two by four and you can take the straight ones and stand them on end and they'll stand on end until the wind blows them over. Take a curved one and try to stand it on end. Right. You have to move the whole board over so that the flat of the bottom of the board is flush to the ground, but then it's outside of Earth's gravity and it falls over. So it literally is like carpentry in that sense. So if that leg is curved or twisted, you're going to have compensations in foot positioning that they go through to make up for it. And the more the efficiency of that stance phase of gait is impacted by those adjustments that they make, the more they're going to report pain and suffering in the form of pathology, right? And they're also losing efficiency, so they're going to have a drop down in performance times because they're taking a portion of that fraction of a moment of stance phase to adjust prior to the step. And they're using, in most cases, and now we can take the pathology and move it up through the foot, then they're using perineus, the perineal group or the extensor group for eversion, pronation, and abduction. And if they have to do that excessively to prepare for every step, you'll see overdevelopment and, and uh, short, strong uh, presentations in those two groups. But at the same token, the counter-opposer to them would then be FHL, flexor lucas longus, and the posterior tibial complex, and they become stretch weakened. Now, on the other type of foot, if those are dominant, 
then what happens is they become contracted strong and the perineus longus and the extensor are uh, extended weak, so to speak. They're basically, it's kind of like they're firing when the top is out of position. And I use the spinning top concept for patients a lot to explain to them how if they have a minor deficit, then that, you know, we can observe a spinning top will continue to spin after it loses its axis for a few degrees. But at some point, there's a tipping point. Sure. And so if we have gross biomechanical deficit, then we are past that tipping point. And that's when you have to tell them they don't have any business running marathons. And that's not usually, that doesn't usually go over very well. We want to hear. Yeah. yeah, right. So then you're trying to gaze basically, you know, a little um, incline on the, in the, uh, in the gym on the treadmill helps, but now they have the new treadmills with the curve built into them. Those are designed to basically reduce the shock of heel strike and impact. And those are helping too. Certain shoes can help um, because they're padded, but still offer structure too, right? Cause we don't want to, we don't want to give something, somebody soft that they're having a hard time maintaining a neutral foot position and stance phase. And that can be derived from whatever you're seeing above in their tibias and femurs. Um, and then the other huge component above, besides those twists and torsions and curves, is leg length difference. And that, there's so many different places that a leg length difference can occur. So simply put, this medial malleolus has a defined distance between the ground and, and its position here, right? And we could measure it, but if the foot pronates, it decreases. And if the foot supinates, it increases. So someone with an anatomical leg length difference can make up for these adjustments if they've got more flexible feet. But if they have real rigid feet, then you'll see that that leg length difference ends up in an issue that you're treating from the sacrum up more so than down in the feet, right? And it's in fact, the more rigid foot type with the leg length difference that suffers so much more up into the structure of the body than, than down below versus people with this adjustment capability in each foot will come and present with unique issues lower than, than the sacrum, i.e. long-legged knee pain or long-legged posterior tibial tendonitis or short-legged neuromas because they're walking along the outside. So when we supinate one foot because it's short, we end up walking along the outside of it. And when we pronate one foot because it's on a long leg, we end up walking along the inside of it. So you can basically expect certain patterns of pathology develop from their compensation pattern. Sure. So as a clinician, when your patients are presenting before you and, and you're young to this like you were 10 years ago when we first met, and you're just like, oh, yes, I can see that the whole house is leaning to the right. You were looking for gross deformity, whereas now with some experience and, you know, you're a master, you can really tailor down to like looking at one side through a, a gate cycle, looking at the other side, seeing this gross difference and going, huh. And then using other valuatory protocols like Craig's test on a bench or I, I like to use a series of um, wedges predetermined and we can offer these to you in your clinic two, three, four millimeter that allow us to have a patient to stand before you while you're wedging their side, have them close their eyes and assess for level with their proprioceptors turned off. So they're only proprioceptive through their feet, right? Proprioceptive through their feet. We get real good results with this wedge kit, a little Craig's test, a little gait analysis, looking for trunk sway is a huge indication of leg length difference. Um, the differing prints, wind sweeping in our pedographs is a huge indication of uh, um, leg length difference. So basically, uh, it's easy to kind of peel back a person's issues by starting with the outside layer. And the only real compounding issue that we found is for some people, they're so highly compensated that you don't nail what the driver of dysfunction is right away till you kind of help them a little first already, right? And then help by helping them a little bit, you get them away from the past the tipping point, you get them back in the zone of they can compensate more effectively. And all of a sudden, what they're compensating for kind of clears up and you see it more readily. So I couch our users through a lot of educating um, and, and a thorough eval form and an option to be very light with that at first or to take it whatever depth they want down the road as they get more practice um, to give us whatever information they want. But with a good cast, prints, and maybe a little gate video when you're not sure what you see. We usually get it right the first time. That's awesome. And that's that's the thing with labs is that you lose that 
Your patients get frustrated when you have to take their device and send it back to us. But we want you to be able to look them in the eye and say, our lab's prepared for this versus other labs where you might not have seen the thing for three weeks again. And then when you get it back, nothing's really improved on it. We're fairly certain that if we continue working on this, we're going to get it right. Yeah. Yeah. I that was the difference. Success with our patients. Uh, I mean, we haven't used you a ton, but uh, with, with the patients that we have, um, we sent a video with everyone because your your knowledge of gate analysis and the biomechanics and everything i mean i think i'm better than the average you know person walking on the sidewalk but i'm not even in the same league as you so it's nice to be able to send that to you so you can kind of see how that matches up like you said with the, the imprint that was taken and and everything else and it, it seems like people are very satisfied with the you know the orthotic that comes with that and it works very well for them because yeah you know the only thing that we hear sometimes is that because we're using a little bit more accommodative materials to, so that it's a comfortable fit because the two challenges are what are you trying to do are you going to get an improvement and then does it fit comfortably and are they willing to wear it because if it doesn't fit comfortably and they're not willing to wear it then you won't get an outcome on the other side of that for and that was the thing when i worked for that other lab it's like well you could work harder as a company to ensure a proper fit. And part of that is don't sell everybody a hard plastic orthotic, right? I mean, this is, and then we can also say, don't sell somebody a completely flimsy orthotic when they have a super hypermobile foot. This is actually an R&D piece that we made out of Kevlar. But it was cost prohibitive to manufacture because the Kevlar chewed up all our grinder belts and all of our uh, saw blades. <laughs> and, and, and the body falls apart too, making them. But yeah, we've tried and we, we basically, so real quick, we take a little bit more accommodative materials for metatarsalgia. This is a poron, okay? And we use it for met pads. We use it... Um, Here's an example of a MET bar. This uh, can then be basically trimmed down to look like a MET pad, or we have MET pads. I just have a sample here. And the MET pad can be inserted into the device to, to load the metatarsal hollow and unload the MET heads. Oh, and also we offer some taping protocols to, because one of the things that happens Notice how our two-year-olds and three-year-olds always take their shoes off, right? Because their brains are like, no, no good, no good. Because they're eliminating toe plantar flexion. If you look at most of your middle-aged patients, they have low plantar flexion tone and excessive extensor tone. And mostly because they have tibial varum and they've been everting to prepare for pronation every step for an adult lifespan. Well, by giving them a tape job here, and we can do two things. We can pull the fat pad back under the med heads because it likes to hang out in the sulcus line like toothpaste and squirt out the tube. So we pull that back. We get great results from that. And then we also give those plantar flexors back their tone, which does some of their tone, which then opposes this overdevelopment on top and also takes dislocated joints and puts them back in their proper configuration. So we can address a lot of forefoot pathology before it's become like my foot where it's rigid and fixed, right? If it's a trauma, you're not gonna get it done. But if it's from repetitive stress and it's a development over time, we have a chance to reverse these things to some degree too. So do you recommend everybody get an orthotic? Uh, or well, so here, that's a good question. And there's a lot of argument in the industry about this. You got the barefoot runners, you've got the Vibram five fingers and all of that. But the one thing that resonates is that you take 10 patients, even the Kenyans and Ethiopians that come over and run the Boston and New York marathons, put shoes on to run on those streets, okay? They probably train barefoot all the time unless the sand's too hot in their native countries. I understand that they only got those sandals on to prevent their feet from burning. Otherwise, they're running around barefoot training, but they can't do that on man-made surfaces because of the nature of the surface and its lack of forgiveness in any way. That being said, then, if you spend a lot of time on man-made surfaces, upright and mobile, 
you can benefit from the proper shoes and orthotics. So if you said, well, what would I have to do to abstain from orthotics? You'd have to spend an inordinate amount of your time off of man-made surfaces, i.e. a balance. So if you got 40 hours a week weight bearing in a, on a man-made surface in the block floor, a uh, concrete floor, then you need 40 hours a week of walking in the woods. No one gets that. Right, right. Right. So we see a progression. Um, if you ask what percentage of the human population has perfect or good biomechanics, it's like one. Yeah. <laughs> the literature says it's one. Um, maybe it's five, but it's not more than five. And if you want to see examples of those, unfortunately, court sports just wreck people real fast, right? Football does too, but that they get half their games on grass and half on a padded concrete. So they're a little bit less impacted, but t basketball players and tennis players, their careers are over real fast if they have biomechanical deficits. So I use John Stockton as an example of a Caucasian American who had excellent biomechanics. And then his teammate as an African-American with excellent biomechanics, Carl Malone. Those two guys, if you look at them, they are almost prototypes for robots, i.e. bing, bing, bing. So they have tripods that they don't have to adjust to load. They just roll right into this step. They have feet that exist right under the kneecap, which is right under a fully centrated hip. And when I say centrated, it means that they got lucky and their hip, when it's in neutral, aims their leg forward. I can't tell you how many people are off just a little bit out or in there. But a little bit is the spinning top concept, right? We can make up for it. But how much better a basketball player is Carl Malone over a guy who has a little uh, external or internal femoral rotation deformity because he's more efficient, right? Uh, Carl, uh, Clyde Drexler, another guy that could just drive to the hoop. Basically, everything was lined up forward like he was dominant. Michael Jordan, you would not see excessive curvature. You would not see a ton of aberrant foot motion in the stance phase of these guys. I, they don't have to do much. They're there. And that's what's defined as, as good biomechanics. And of course, you have to consider what they're doing, right? So in essence, in our offices, yours and mine, we're not seeing people with good biomechanics because they're not driven in the door by anything. But I guarantee you, even Don Stockton and Carl Malone were suffering from nightly beatings from the floors they played on. And I think the NBA did a good thing when they went to that flexible wood flooring they used. They even roll it out and put it together, right? Like a, a puzzle on the floor of the concrete underneath. That stuff gives versus like a, ten, like a concrete uh, tennis player, like the tour, the hardcore tour for, for the tennis guys. I, I mean, I would think that that's just murderous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And running marathons like the Colfax Marathon, we, I mean, I could go generate patients down there handing out your feet hurt, your back hurt, your knees hurt, you know, just because they run from the east side of Denver to the west side of Denver all the way down Colfax. It's like, ouch, ouch, ouch. You can run behind people and see them running like this or running like this. And that's all you have to do is you can sit there with your brain going, it's got to be like this. And then when it's like this or like this, you can say, I could help them to some degree. The more they're outside of that ideal that we just discussed in answer to your question, the more they could benefit from a use of orthotics. So if you see someone who walks in like a robot, then you could say, well, unless they have plantar fasciitis or metatarsalgia, maybe we don't give this guy an orthotic. We just give him a good shoe recommendation, show him how to tape his fat pad back into place. Because with those more... We see athletes have a little bit more rigidity, right? And they have more spring in their joint lines. So we don't see, you don't see somebody who's a sprinter with a highly pronatory foot. You just don't see that. The guy who's super fast has a really good lever for propulsion. And they're still hammering the bursa and soft tissue under their heel and all the soft tissue in, the, in their forefoot. So depending on who they are and what they do, even with... Carl Malone and John Stockton's biomechanics, if they're a factory worker for GM and they walk the floor every day, you're going to make them better with a pair of supportive orthotics. And what happens in that instance is they just get a, a better redistribution of plantar foot pressures with some pressure being borne in what I call the stirrup of the foot. So Drs. Winchester and one of his colleagues recently proved that 
the perineus longus and the posterior tip come together underneath the distal calcaneus, creating a stirrup that also helps the spring ligament to some extent, right? And that bottoming out effect and also helps them orient the foot. We see a lot of problems with those two muscle groups when a person walks on a hockey skate instead of a tripod. All you have to do is remove either the first met head or the fifth met head from their forefoot mechanics, and they are suddenly trying to balance on a hockey skate. And if you ever tried to balance on a hockey skate that's not laced well, then it's virtually impossible, right? So, and in fact, to create this kind of stability in athletics, they do these massive tape jobs. So if you look at all the offensive and defensive linemen in the NFL and in college football, they have the ability for that ankle to invert or evert completely eliminated by the tape job too, right? So guess what happens next? Blow out a knee. So then they wrap up the knee, and then these guys are falling over like rhinoceroses and elephants on the field, right? But that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to prevent the, the joint from failing. But it starts with an unstable stance phase. So that's what's awesome about the pedograph, right? Um, let me see if I can drum one up real quick. No, I can't. But in any case, uh, I'd have to step away for a second. But the pedograph gives us an opportunity to see if they are indeed bearing weight in those tripodal points, right? You see a good forefoot distribution and a healthy amount of pressure under FHL and a healthy amount of pressure under fifth and first. That's a really good forefoot mechanic. So even a two-dimensional footprint tells you a lot. We can actually take this image here and we can see calcaneal eversion range of motion or lack of it in the print. We can see if they get any medial arch pressures and we can judge whether they're going through an excessive range of eversion or inversion planting that foot through the step just from the proper inferences from the pedograph alone. Most labs, the fallacy that they have going on is one of three things, okay? Either they got you convinced that they can walk an iPad up to your foot and get this image. And of course the clinician knows which angle to put it at, right? Yeah. Whereas we use the ground, so we're using the ground under the assumption that your floors are level. My building's 100 and something years old, so I have to work around that a little bit. I've had it leveled in a couple spots. But that's why we have that as a frame of reference is the floor in our casting procedure. The other thing, too, is that they, the thing that determines is, is those labs are, get, are, sending, are receiving a cast, but not many of them are getting the difference between a partial weight-bearing cast where the foam allows us to position the foot in a position ideal to its anatomy, i.e. not packed out by the overburden of the body above it, plus the print then shows us in two dimensions what it looks like after you slam 120 pounds on it in gait or more, right? We can deduce so much from the difference in the cast in the print. And so if a lab doesn't have those two points of data, then they don't have a podorthist or a podiatrist that can infer how much splay occurs and how much gross deviation of the foot position occurs under weight-bearing from that partial weight-bearing position in the casting procedure. So the cast then, the job of the cast when you have the box under the foot is to make up for tibial varum, to dorsiflex it properly, and then get a neutral in the sagittal plane entry of the foot. So some of the most difficult feet to cast are the ones with more i'm going to tip this down maybe you guys can you see the floor over here at all yep, yep, yep. so notice that off of a tibial varum this foot loads can you see it hitting the ground yep you see how it loads the outside and rotates down and in so if the person didn't have pronation range of motion off that tibial varum to get to here they'd be walking with the first in the air that would be that hockey skate instead of tripod and then you could definitely probably palpate the belly of posterior tip and perineus and say find that they're like uh, high tone and and sore from overuse um but it's definitely that inability to properly load the tripodal foot that creates the need for the patient to correct through swing phase so a lot of anticipation of step occurs in compensation during swing phase. So 
you will see um, we're going to discuss a pathology now that's really one of the most troublesome ones in the industry. It's either Morton's toe. Morton was the first person to describe a short stubby first metatarsal shaft that then put the axis of the first MPJ, MPJ relative to two MTP proximal. So as they go to load that first, they already have that 0.8 seconds and they don't load the MPJ sufficiently and they make up for it with FHL. So what you see in the print is pressure five through two, nothing under one, massive amounts under the distal hallux, right? That's the person that needs what we call a Morton's extension, where we're bringing the ground up to that MPJ and it's like lengthening the effective lever of that first metatarsal. Now this is orthotics 301, but if somebody has a really short fifth metatarsal shaft, they're gonna fall off that fifth when they go through the lateral foot loading pattern. So you guys know Ben Fergus? Uh, why does the name sound? So anyway, he lectures a lot. The rigid foot type, the cavus foot, a lot of times those people have a short fifth. And they also have an, a, a lack of range of pronation, right? So they have a hard time because they don't have a foot that moves down and in. They end up short fifth and a rigid foot promoted by that foot and a little bit of tibial varum to just send right off the outside of the foot. So the Birkenstock or echo style forefoot where there's not as much gross offset in these angles where it's more of like a book across the front, like a bunch of the same kind of books, like an encyclopedia, right? They're all lined up ready for this action of toe off. So you can, knowing that if you look down and the person has like a sloth foot, which to me is like a really long second and third toe. Sometimes the second, third toes are like a good half an inch longer than the first and they look like they could climb a rope pretty good, you know? <laughs> well, that's not a good forefoot configuration for toe off because it basically hammers the second and third metatarsals into the ground, plantar plate tears, metatarsalgia, neuromas. So an analysis of forefoot structure and the ability for them to fork to toe off on one plane is also a really good thing to, to know in your office. And that's what we glean from the pedograph too, that we can't necessarily glean when you've corrected their foot in the cast. Because if their foot goes through any gross deviation under weight bearing, that you take out in the cast and you send us just the cast and not the weight bearing print, we won't be able to see what happens there unless you sent us a video too. So you can imagine these labs that have you bamboozled into thinking that they're going to nail this for you every time. And all you have to do is bing, bang, boom it, but you don't send them a contrast of some type between non weight bearing and weight bearing. A lot of times they miss it. I know I've been all over the map, but I hope that we've kind of, yeah. illustrated the point that you know it's from the ground up kind of thing absolutely yeah i, I think it um kind of hit hit everything all in one um i guess getting into the the clinically pressed questions um just to kind of because that was i mean up there for for the everyday person um what is something that maybe you believe that potentially others may not that a lot of problems that lead a person into the orthopedic surgeon's office can be rectified by a thorough biomechanical analysis and a well-applied set of foot orthotics. Oh, I could, yeah, that's simple too. And I've got some experience with snowboarding and skiing, and I can tell you, and using myself as, as an example, yesterday I turned out my binding on, my, on, one of my, on the foot that has the offset from the accident. So here's, an, here's the one they reconstructed. Notice the internal tibial torsion I resulted with. Well, I've had the ankle reconstructed in the last three years. In the last couple of days out riding something, it's, it's an evolution. Snowboarding is an evolution, so skiing. I was getting massive pain, and I, saw, I said to my girlfriend, I was like, I go out one more day without changing something, and I'm going to blow the ankle out again. All I did was rotate the binding out three degrees, and it made a massive change in the loading on the perineus because I was kicking that uh, toe side back around, but it was excessive emphasis supinating my foot through that motion, right? So literally 
the the what I tell the 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 people who we have a really great uh, Vail Summit orthopedic here, and the surgeons are so awesome because they will exhaust all conservative means before sending their patients into the surgery room. So we get a chance, whereas a lot of doctors never even give us a chance, right? And that's why I say go for a biomechanical evaluation. If you've never been worked up, even if you don't get the orthotics. So in our office, we offer an $80 evaluation. That money goes towards a package price for orthotics that includes three visits because you've got the original visit for casting and evaluation. You've got the dispense visit where you're going to make sure they have a good shoe, right? And you're going to get it in there and make sure it fits in there. They fit in. They walk out the door. They're like, yeah, doc, it feels reasonable. You advise them of a break-in schedule. And then you have them come back three, uh, two, three weeks later with wear patterns, gait analysis, again, feedback from the patient. And in your case, the opportunity to shoot some more video, send it to me and debug the problem and send me the orthotic if you have to. So I tell patients, even the ones that, and this is another one, have the bag with the four pairs. None of them worked $1,500 later. Why can you do better? Because of those things we've already said about choosing the right material, taking the right data, providing video to the lab, building it from the right materials with the caveat that it isn't right the first time, we're definitely going to change it and make it a second go, a third go of it. We got a lot of these labs that have no idea. I mean, I can't tell you how much crap I see that basically they're missing the boat by just a small little ridge, something biting into the foot that prevents the patient from wearing it. They didn't notice, like for instance, when I told you that a foot that we don't have the splay component what if their cast comes to us like this, but we don't realize that they walk like this when they're weight bearing? Do you think that patient's gonna tolerate that shell edge biting them in the arch right here? Right, so by giving us those two points of data, so I tell the end users a couple things. Not all foot orthotic providers are the same. Look for feedback, a word of mouth referral, go in, ask them who's making it, you know, basically find out what they make out, um, out of, maybe tell them who, what you've had before. And if you then have had something comparable to what they make, then you may maybe option out. But from your perspective, you've got people coming in that say, well, doc, my, even your shoulder, right? Somebody can have a frozen shoulder from a leg length difference. We get smart dentists sending in people for TMJ because of four foot varus. So literally, I would just, and this is where I'm going with this as I get into retirement. I wanna build a, spree, a screening protocol for 12 to 14 year olds that's instituted in either our junior highs or in admissions for high school, where every patient is screened by the school nurse with a very short, brief screening protocol of large, gross deformity. So that those nurses don't have to be challenged in their education that the screening protocol protocol is boom, boom, boom. So in answer to your question, I would tell all of your patients that it's a good idea to be screened biomechanically once in a lifetime. Sure. The sooner the better. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, except, you know, I mean, your five-year-old's not gonna really tell you what's up. For sure. But when they're 10. Yeah, right. 10 or 11, 12, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, there are some people like if they're finicky about their shoes, don't sell them an orthotic. Cause they won't ever get it. You won't ever get it right for them. It's like the princess in the pea thing, you know, like if they, if they say, if the first thing they say is I can't find, I can never find a shoe that's comfortable, then unless they're willing to throw money at that reality without holding you to the fire of it, don't provide them an orthotic. But if they are, if they, if you've got them couched around an idea that they have never explored and they can attest that they've had a lifetime of suffering and especially X suffering that increases exponentially the more they move forward, then you could say, well, it sounds like you derive your problem from hitting a step count. Therefore, we can safely say we should look at your movement patterns and see if there's a reason why that happens from some aberrant motion in bio biomechanics or aberrant gait, right? So you kind of couch them to the idea that you might actually find something no one else has found in the way that they function relative to standing and walking. So that's why the screening, and at that price point, I have yet to have a patient that didn't walk out of here paying the 80, feeling good about what they were told about themselves 
for that money. I, they might say, I'm still not sold. I've got six pairs in my bag, but you have told me things that no one else has told me about how I option or how I operate, how I work when I move and, and, and maybe just being a little bit harsh and saying, you know, that person, like I had a gal come in here the other day that when her hips are centrated, her feet are 35 to 40 degrees outside of the sagittal plane and her knees. And she runs and she's considering bilateral hip surgery. But no one ever told her that her centrated hip has her standing before me like this. Like this is centrated. She could go, but she could only go to like this. So when she rotates her legs into the sagittal plane, she's at end range of hip motion already. So her body started building up spurs in those acetabulums. And then the doctors, that's the other thing too. You can tell your doctors, look, these surgeons are mostly reactionary, i.e. they're going to take film, they're going to look and see what they see, and then they're going to decide if they've procedured to fix it carpentry style. That's what I like about Vail Summit Orthopedics is that they'll at least watch the patient move, suggest they go to PT or a Cairo or see me for that eva and see me for that evaluation to see if there's anything that can be done before electing for a hip replacement or in her case, they were going to give her a laminectomy and a spur removal. Like IE basically that sounds to me like they're going to go and remove what her body has done skeletally to make up for this malalignment. Right. Have you guys have heard of, and this is some fun here, but I just heard of this and I've been doing this for 20 years. So I was like, well, who invented this terminology? But it is called malicious alignment deficiency. And I'm going to look it up so I get it correct. But doesn't like, have you, did you hear that in school? No. Right. So let me look it up real quick. The acronym being mad then? What's that? Would the acronym for that be mad? Yeah, I want to make sure because it will drive you mad, right? Yeah. Especially if you want to be like, I'll, I'll use another. Yeah, no, it's not exact. It's, yeah, see, it's just such a strange term. But, you know, the thing about it is I'm going to, I think I want to get it. Miserable malalignment. Miserable malalignment, yeah. MMS. Where'd that, where'd that come from? I just found that. I just figured that out like a week or two ago. <laughs> right. So if, if you know, people like things that are compartmentalized and pigeonholed, right? So if you can show them they don't line up, like I keep looking at your wall back there. You guys had some like colored tape on the wall back there and a full size mirror. You could have someone walking right at the mirror and say, see how this is not lined up in what would be ideal. Then they see it, they go, oh, and they have much more of a cognizance to how they move relative to someone else. A lot of people don't see that they move any differently than the person next to them until it's brought to their attention. So that's another good avenue for one of the best things that worked for me early on was going to my Nine News Health Fair here and just offering the five minute screening. And I would take the pedograph and I wouldn't even use it every time because if they walked up with a shoulder like this and a dipped hip, I'd bang out that leg length difference problem for him right away and throw one of these clipboards, H of an inch thick, thick under the short side and kind of show them how that worked. Um, so just with a couple of ideas of like showing them hip internal external range of motion and knee motion and like some high knee marches, like what do you see when my left leg comes up here versus my right? Can you see the bottom of my foot in this motion? I cannot. Okay. Still can't see you. Right? So if there was something grossly out of whack, if I had a major external tibial torsion, you would expect to see something like this. And on this one, you can see the internal tibial torsion, right? And I have a, I have a lift on this shoe. Can you see my hips in this picture? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does this look lower? On the left, yep. Yep, now put the shoes on. This is the same thing as the ledge testing, by the way, because I know what value I have here. Sure. Up. 
So, and then for those, you know, like if you, if you just don't have the confidence or whatever, or the enthusiasm at first, the tape line on the wall and having your patient stand near it, got a good wall for that, will we'll highlight it. Um, you can also get a carpenter's level, set it on people's pelvises on their belts. But if you see it, they don't. They usually feel it. And if you give them the wedge testing, then basically you'll get them to feel it in your eval. So it's kind of a process of discovery for you and a process of illumination for them as to what you've discovered. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it. Yeah, I do too. That was, that was good. That was I can't wait knowledge. to go back and just rewatch it for yeah. my own personal. I'm sorry, man, if I'm over the top for what you hope to derive from this. Oh, not at all. I think it's good. I think it's it's over the top for for some and and for others. I think it'll hit home right right uh, be right at the right level. So I think it shows the importance and that it can be something like your point of. You know, a chance to cut is a chance to cure isn't always the way to go, that there's a lot of other options to exhaust first. I think that's important. So if you guys want to take something from this right away, take some colored tape, measure out lines um, between the average um, instep height, right? So it's usually, what's that, from 25, 24 inches to about 40 inches off the floor? So you'd have like use your lines there and then on the floor a couple of lines to make up uh the distance between um acetabulums on hips projected to the floor for wide and and smaller narrower people so you'd have like three lines in a row on either side and your patients can literally be placed up against the wall heel counters against the baseboard feet on whatever parallel lines on the floor fit their hip width and then you can stand back and take a photo right there on your phone, turn around your iPad, turn around, show it to them, and it'll blow their mind how malaligned or whatever it was, miserably aligned they are, right? So you've got a screening protocol right there you can employ too. Nice. Cool. Cool. That's nice. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Sean. We'll have to do this. Yeah. Again. Thanks a lot, Kyle. And is it Brad? Joel. Joel. Nice to meet you. Thank you for checking out this episode of Clinically Pressed. Go to clinicallypressed.com for full show notes and links to everything that was covered in this episode. While you're there, you have access to all of our episodes, insights, and shorts. You can find Clinically Pressed on YouTube and any podcast outlet. If you could give us a rating, thumbs up, or review on how we are doing, we would greatly appreciate it. To get more free content delivered to your inbox, sign up for the Total Athletic Therapy Newsletter. You'll get direct links to all new clinically pressed episodes, reviews on some of the latest research in health and performance, and links to related podcasts and other items meant to help you make the complicated simple and optimize performance. Thank you for listening and see you next episode.